introduce a little anarchy. Upset the established order, and everything becomes chaos. I'm an agent of chaos. Hello and welcome to this series exploring the philosophy of anarchism. And, as the title suggests, boiling it down to its very essence. Does it, as we've just heard the Joker claim, imply chaos and disorder? Or does it in fact lead to a far greater state of societal harmony than we currently experience? These are the questions we'll be getting into. Anarchism is a concept which, at the time of recording, I've been interested in for the past 10 years. I experienced a three-year learning, or maybe better to say unlearning, curve before I felt comfortable asserting it as my political position. Ironic as that might sound. Doing so has led me into all sorts of trouble whenever political discussion has arisen. If you say you're left or right, Labour or Conservative, Democrat or Republican, people of the opposite persuasion might roll their eyes, but it's not likely they'll look at you as if you have two heads. They'll certainly have encountered your type before. That expression of incredulity will become normal, however, should you start to hint that you might be an anarchist and talk about such things as doing away with the nation-state altogether. As long as you're prepared for elongated dinner table discussion, people's suspicion need be no bad thing. Everything and the kitchen sink will likely be thrown at you as you progress from one ineffectual way of explaining yourself to another. When sufficient years have passed, you might feel bold enough to record the very best of your ineffectual explanations and release them on the internet. Obviously, this is the point I have arrived at today. In this series, I won't be focusing on the history and breadth of anarchist thought. This has been done very well elsewhere by people with far more expertise than I. When I do mention historical figures, it will just be to add a bit of colour and not as an essential part of any explanation. I will simply be offering the most concise and meaningful ways I have found to express what anarchism is and why that's important. Wherever possible, I will avoid employing any kind of empirical data. I won't be feeding you potentially spurious facts and statistics you will have to go off and verify. Rather, I'll be employing philosophical thought experiments that you can contemplate for yourself. I will present my own conclusions and build upon them, but I fully anticipate that we won't always agree. Ultimately, I see asking the right questions as being far more important than getting the right answers anyway. The only logical place to start then is by asking, what does the word anarchy actually mean? What images does it conjure up in your mind? If you're like most people, including the Joker, there'll be ones of chaos and disorder, lawlessness and destruction. That's certainly the common perception, but such things have really nothing to do with what the word anarchy actually means. Anarchy comes from two Greek words, an, meaning without, and archos, meaning rulers. It is then simply to be without rulers. 
This is quite different from how it's commonly understood, which would be more like to be with chaos. Indeed, the term anarchy first appears in the English language to imply a state of chaos, with the royalist forces of King Charles describing as anarchists those parliamentarians who sought to depose the monarchy. Now, it may well be that the absence of rulers will inevitably lead to chaos, but we certainly wouldn't want to accept this on the word of monarchs seeking to hold on to their crowns and heads. Before we get to such an examination, however, we must first decide what constitutes a ruler and what kind of people fall into this category. We may very well not come up with the same answer. However, I'm hopeful there is at least a starting place on common ground where we can meet. We'd probably agree that monarchs, in the traditional sense, and dictators constitute rulers. We might also add slavers to the list. These categories of people claim the right to control the lives of others. With other categories, it may not be so obvious. What about politicians, up to and including presidents and prime ministers? Does the nature of the countries they run make any difference? What about bosses and business owners? Does it make a difference whether they're running a small business, making a humble income, or whether they are the CEO of a major corporation, earning a vast salary compared to their employees. We may also think that there are good and bad rulers, and what we should really want is to be without bad rulers, as opposed to having no rulers whatsoever. One thing we can perhaps state is that when we are speaking about rulers, we are really describing the nature of a relationship between ruler and ruled. With that in mind, I will attempt to offer up a basic definition which hopefully we can build upon. See how you feel about it. Whether someone is a ruler or not is determined by whether the relationship in question is based on consent or coercion. How does that sit with you? If a relationship is consensual, it is, by its very nature, anarchic. No person can be considered the ruler of the other. If, on the other hand, a relationship is coerced, if one person is forced to be a part of it against their will, then it is not anarchic. Rather, it is archic, or with rulers. If this premise is true, it should surely be true at any scale. The principle would hold whether we are talking about an individual forced into a marriage of two, a slave on a plantation of hundreds, or a person living in a dictatorship of millions. The relationships here are coerced, not consensual, and therefore not anarchic. By contrast, when a person chooses their partner, employment, and governance of their own free will, these relationships are anarchic. Now, we must acknowledge it might not always be straightforward to determine what exactly constitutes consent. Economic relationships, for example, could pose a problem. If a person is dying of thirst, they may sign their life away for a glass of water. But can they really be said to have freely given consent? This is an extreme example, but I'm sure it's not hard for you to think of others where we may feel exploitation is taking place. 
Additional areas might include the application of psychological pressure. For example, can a person raised inside a cult freely consent to their continued involvement as an adult? Tricky. These are the kind of questions we will be coming to, but to stand any chance of getting anywhere with them, we'll have to lay some more foundations first. There are many shades of grey, but it seems to me there is also black and white. If we can establish a way of thinking about the clear-cut cases, we will be in a better place to take on the more challenging ones. And so that concludes this introductory episode. All I've wanted to convey here is the most basic sense of anarchism as concerning questions of consent and coercion. Whilst that may not seem like much, it is my experience that the unwillingness to spend time laying proper foundations is what leads to the construction of shaky political theories. Taking time to fully contemplate the basics will pay us dividends as we go. I will leave you now to think over the definition of anarchy I have offered, and what the difference between consenting and coerced relationships means to you. Next time, we'll be laying another foundational stone by looking at the concept of property. Thanks for listening. I hope you tune in again.